Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks, public lands, and today, national forests. I'm your host, Kate Gretzinger, with the Center for Western Priorities, recording today in Salt Lake City. And I'm Aaron Weiss in beautiful Denver, Colorado. At least it's getting a little more beautiful today. Finally got hot this week. Today on the pod, we're talking to a forest researcher, Dr. Dominic Della Sala, about the Biden administration's efforts to protect old growth and mature forests. This is a great conversation for folks who want to know more about how our national forests are currently managed and what we can do to help conserve them. But before we jump into that, let's do the news. California Representative Judy Chu and Senator Alex Padilla are asking President Joe Biden to use his authority under the Antiquities Act to add over 100,000 acres to the San Gabriel Mountains National Monument. The area is rich in historical and ecological significance, and it's within an hour drive of the 18 million people who live in the greater Los Angeles area. Expanding the monument would increase its size by roughly a third and would also help the U.S. Forest Service manage recreation in areas left out of the monument, which was designated in 2014 by President Barack Obama. The monument expansion would also help protect the San Gabriel Mountains watershed, which provides Los Angeles County with 70 percent of its open space and roughly 30 percent of its water. The other big story this week a 5-4 ruling from the Supreme Court ruling against the Navajo Nation in a water rights case. The court found that an 1868 treaty with the U.S. did not require the federal government to ensure the tribe has access to water. Now, this ruling was very interesting because the opinions in the case even disagreed about what the Navajo Nation was asking of the court. Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote the majority opinion. He said that that 1868 peace treaty didn't require the federal government to take, quote, affirmative steps to secure water for the tribe. Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote a scathing dissent, joining the three liberal justices to say that the Navajo request was much smaller than that and that the U.S. had violated the treaty while giving the tribe the runaround for decades. Quote, To date, their efforts to find out what water rights the United States holds for them have produced an experience familiar to any American who has spent time at the Department of Motor Vehicles. The Navajo have waited patiently for someone, anyone to help them, only to be told repeatedly that they have been standing in the wrong line and must try another. Now, Justice Gorsuch, as conservative as he is, has also emerged as possibly the biggest defender on this Supreme Court of Native American rights. And that puts him on a course for a collision with Justice Clarence Thomas, who really appears to be on a path to demolish the underpinnings of Indian law in America. There's a great piece from the New Republic on that. It is worth reading. Uh, Something has to give here, even among the conservative uh, majority on this court. So we are going to be paying very close attention to that in the coming years. That's right. And just a couple of notes um, on things coming up in the next week or two. The public lands rule comment period ends on July 5th. So go ahead and make your um, opinions known to the BLM on that if you want to. Um, And a final note, we've heard that the Biden administration's interagency working group on mining reform, which we've talked about here on the podcast before, may be releasing its recommendations soon. So keep an eye out for that. We'll definitely break those down on a future episode whenever they emerge. 
Dr. Dominic Della Sala is chief scientist at Wild Heritage, a project of the Earth Island Institute. He's the author of over 300 science papers on forest and fire ecology, conservation biology, endangered species management, and landscape ecology. Dr. Della Sala, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So the Biden administration has made some big announcements about protecting old growth forests in the past two years. Can you do us a favor and break those down for us? Yeah, so uh, very exciting announcements that the president has made. This goes back to uh, Earth Day 2022, when the president directed federal agencies to start a process for inventorying the nation's mature and old growth forests for conservation purposes. And this past Earth Day, uh, following that directive, both the Forest Service and the BLM have announced a public process for deciding what to do with the nation's mature and old growth forest on federal lands. Now, the significance of this is that I, for one, have been working on this issue for many decades and been asking for just a basic map of what we have left. And uh, we now have one. Uh, my team published one. Uh, shortly after the first announcement in a peer-reviewed uh, publication that points to we have over 50 million acres of federal mature and old-growth forests that have no formal protection, and that yet those forests are absolutely critical to our climate uh, solution, our natural climate solutions, and they contain a lot of imperiled species and incredible biodiversity, clean water. We get so much from those forests. Uh, and now we have rulemaking, which is wonderful. And it's not just focused on old growth forests. It's focused on mature, which is the age class of forest that is not quite old growth, but you give them another decade or so or a few decades and they will develop old growth characteristics as they age. So it allows for some of the ecosystem recovery since we have so little left in the U.S. in general. We need to get those forests back. So it's a pretty exciting time uh, in terms of uh, the two announcements on Earth Day. Just so everyone knows these terms as we're talking about them, what is that age cutoff uh, for old growth versus mature forests? And, and I realize that probably does come into play when we're talking about rulemakings then and, and what is protected for being old growth versus mature. Yeah, what a great question. And it's something that scientists uh, have dwelled on for many years now. And I think we could pretty much rule out that there's no argument about what old growth is. You take a hike in an old growth forest, you know you're in something special. It's like being in a cathedral and you just know you're in it when you're in it. The trees are old. It's got a certain structure to it, a certain look, a certain feel, a certain smell, so to speak. Uh, but the debate really is around what is mature. And when we scientists look at forest, we have a series of proxies that relate to the structural characteristics of those forests. And when all the proxies are together, then we know we're in old growth, like the size of the trees, the height of the trees, the complexity of the forest understory, the vertical layering, the soil uh, horizon development, all of those factors are related to how we can define an old growth forest. But not all of them are present in a mature forest. So you kind of have to back out from there and say, well, you got most of them, but not all of them and just need a little bit more time. 
And we do know that these structural features are correlated with the age of the trees in the forest. So the older the trees, the more structurally complex the forest gets over time. And so you need to really kind of look at age as one of the factors that's involved. And it really is going to vary from site to site across the country. But in general, a ballpark is about 80 years or so. We start to see the development of these older characteristics that are, you know, really what we would call a mature forest. And as those trees get older and older, then they become old growth. And we tend to focus on Mountain West states here at CWP. So that includes some deserts, uh, including like pinyon pine forests. Does that change then what's considered mature? And for these acreage counts, uh, is that appropriate to include those sorts of trees in those acreage numbers? I think it is. And, you know, any uh, forest or woodland ecosystem is going to have a successional gradient, so to speak, that it goes through across a time continuum from newly established to more complex and older. And so we tend to just view older forests as these cathedral places. But there's a lot of variability out there. I mean, uh, you could go to an oak woodland and see some magnificent 300-year-old oak trees in a very open grassland-like setting. In the southeastern United States, you can be in a longleaf pine wiregrass community where the trees are only about 80 years old, but they're considered old and the understory is incredibly biocomplex because of the tight association with frequent fires. You get a lot of diversity in the plant communities. And then in the pinyon pine juniper, that those are very open ecosystems, but even those trees can be really old. So we've just got to look at it with, with a, a very broad set of eyes, so to speak, that it's not just the old growth forest in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska. Every part of the country that has forest has older age classes. So let's talk about that number that the Biden administration came up with or uh, the Forest Service came up with for the Biden administration. It They found that there are more than 100 million acres of old growth and mature timberlands is the word they used, um, still standing on public lands specifically. Uh, do you agree with that number? Does it sound right to you? Um, and was it a surprise to you? It was a surprise, in, in no doubt, because we had published an earlier study. And it really comes down to the methods that these studies use. And so what we did is for the very first time, NASA provided all of its uh, LIDAR information from the JEDI sensor array orbiting the planet. And we grabbed a hold of that and we're really excited about it. Uh, so we used laser pulse uh, three-dimensional imagery to map forests based on their structural characteristics, the height of trees, the uh, cover, percent cover in the canopy, the amount of above ground biomass in the forest. You can all see this from space. It's just amazing technology that we now have at our disposal. So that was the method that we used. And we also verified it using ground-based plots uh, but we set our thresholds at a different percentage. So when you look at the canopy in these forests, you can set the threshold at a very open canopy, which means you're going to get more pinyon pine, or a more closed canopy, which means you're going to get less pinyon pine juniper. Uh, 
And so they got more, we got less. And in, in the look at the, the summation of the amount of mature and old growth, they got about double what our study showed because of where the thresholds were set. And they picked up a lot more of the open pinion pine juniper. And that's okay. This is something to celebrate that we still have enough of these older forests that if we protect them from logging, we could start restoring the ecosystem and enlist them as natural climate solutions as part of the U.S. strategy to get off of fossil fuels. We've got to have natural ecosystems right there with getting off of fossil fuels. And it's exciting that we've got this much opportunity in front of us. That's awesome and great to hear. Um, and you mentioned uh, logging as a threat. What are the other threats to these old growth and mature forests? You know, logging is the principal threat and climate change also, but they kind of go hand in hand. So uh, ecosystems, in order for us to get through this major global biodiversity and climate crisis, we need to have our ecosystems in as highest integrity as possible. And that means reducing anthropogenic stressors. Logging is the principal one in these forests. If we reduce those stressors from logging, then those forests have a better chance of adapting to the extreme climatic conditions that we're heading into, already experiencing. And so that's really the principal threat. And the more we log these forests, the more we stress them out, the more we put emissions into the atmosphere, the more we contribute to the global warming problems, including wildfire activity. So it's all tied to uh, increasing greenhouse gas emissions uh, contributed in part to the logging of forests globally. Let's dive into wildfire a little bit there. Uh, obviously, we, we've seen forests that are overgrown as a result of 100 years of inappropriate fire suppression policies that are now these tinderboxes uh, that ready to, to burn at any moment. All of that that hundred years of the Forest Service 10 a.m. policy now being amplified by the effects of climate change. How do you go about protecting these old growth forests while at the same time avoiding or mitigating the harms that have come from that wildfire suppression policy? Yeah, that's a really complicated question. So I'll try to simplify as much as I can. <laughs> you know, the main reason why we're getting these big fires today, it's the combination of out-of-control greenhouse gas emissions. We're treating the atmosphere as a dumping ground for all of our carbon emissions. And that is only going to add to the problems increasingly catastrophically throughout the world and in our country as well. Uh, and that is causing these the extreme fire weather conditions that we're seeing, heat domes, mega droughts, high winds. Uh, and when you combine that with a heavily logged landscape, now you've got the recipe for priming the fire pump. And so what we've seen is in industrially logged landscapes, you've got a lot of slash that's left in these clear cuts. The trees are all small, planted in dense, neat rows. And so when a fire hits that, it's like gasoline. It just goes... Um, if it just burns 
rapidly and intensely through the landscape. So it's that combination. So the more we log, the more we contribute to that feedback with wildfire activity, and the more we prime the landscape for more dangerous fires, because you know when a fire burns through an area, it's gonna go through the small trees a lot faster. The large trees tend to be more of a climate and a wildfire sanctuary. They will burn at times, but they tend to burn in lower fire severities and have all kinds of adaptation properties that allow them to resist fire. Or if they're killed by the fire, then they're pretty resilient in terms of their genetic adaptations to come back in, in their seeds and, and restore the, the forest. So the large trees are not the problem. The older forests are not the problem. The industrial logged forests are the problem along with climate change. In particular, the the monoculture there, that these are all the same species planted at the same time. That, that it, is there anyone out there trying to address that? Are, are, are foresters out there being like, okay, well, we can replant this in a way that does not leave all trees at the same age in the same row? Or is that just not the way the industry works? Yeah, I think that could be a possible solution. I mean, the first rule of of restoration ecology is to do no harm uh, initially, right? Uh, it's the precautionary approach that the UN has adopted. And uh, what we've got to do is stop logging these mature and old growth forests so we don't have to uh, get into the risky business of restoration later on because we don't know how to do that for an old growth ecosystem. But we can get smarter and better about our forestry operations in general. Uh, and that includes, you know, just uh, leaving more of the forest behind, uh, not planting in dense rows and uh, using more prescribed burning uh, and also working with wildfire for ecosystem benefits. Under safe conditions, we should be uh, propagating wildland fire use uh, and not trying to extinguish, extinguish every single fire start. And the Forest Service in particular is bipolar on this. They talk about working with fire for ecosystem benefits as part of their comprehensive wildfire approach, but they try almost always to stop wildfires, even when they cannot possibly be stopped. It becomes more of an air show of dropping retardant on places that are burning in extreme fire weather, putting firefighters at harm's risk when we can't possibly put those fires out. I mean, we got to do everything we can to save lives and homes, but we also have to recognize there are limitations in terms of what we can do when so much of this is being driven by the, the, the climate signal. So we've strayed a little bit away from the Biden administration's plans to protect mature and old growth forests. Um, what are those plans at the moment? We talked about the inventory, but what are they actually going to do to protect these trees? And do you think that their plans go far enough? Well, that is remains to be seen. And the deadline for comment submission is coming up. I think it's on June 20th, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and they're going to take that into consideration and figure out what the next steps are to respond to the president's executive order. I have a big worry about it because I think of the fire uh, hyperbola is behind a lot of misinformation about what to do with these forests. 
There is absolutely no ecological reason or climate reason for logging large trees and older forests. And yet I worry that we're going to see something that is going to exaggerate the fire problem to the point of chainsaw solutions. And that is not going to solve the fire issue. It's only going to predispose those older forests to even more fire activity because thinning tends to be excessive in forest. You can dry out the understory, increase the wind penetration in a forest, uh, and actually promote fire, especially if you don't reduce the slash that you've uh, put on the ground from thinning those forests. So I don't think thinning is a solution in those forests. We just need to have some restraint and realize that there are some places that are so special, that are so important to the climate, to biodiversity, that we just leave them alone. I mean, there's so many logged over landscapes that need some love right now. And it, uh, in terms of restoration, it's not the mature and old growth forest. Let's let's have some restraint there. It, it seems like part of the problem here is the, the words that are being used, that thinning to one person may sound like you're talking about getting rid of that slash and underbrush and the, the small trees that provide the fuel. Uh, and to a logging company, thin, thinning may sound like chopping down every third big old growth tree because, of course, that's where the money's at. And is this fundamentally a, a budget problem that the kind of fuel reduction that you need to to mitigate the 100 years of the 10 a.m. rule is not, in fact, profitable? That's going to have to be money we just spend as a country and do not see any return on. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of things I'd like to comment on. Um, the first is on the fuels issue. Uh, reducing fuels under certain conditions can lower fire intensity. You have to be lucky. You have to have a lightning bolt hit that spot on the ground within 10 to 15 years or so, depending on site productivity, of when you've done some fuel reduction. And you've got to do everything right. You can't take too much of the overstory. You've got to leave the big fire-resistant trees in place. And yet, if you do all of that, Catching a lightning bolt on the ground based on empirical data is less than 1%. So the odds are incredibly small. And if you want to increase those odds and, and thin over huge landscapes, then you're doing more collateral damages to the ecosystems. You're putting more carbon into the atmosphere than the fires themselves. So you're adding to the vicious cycle. And we do know that under extreme fire weather, heat domes, high winds, drought, fires blow through everything. I mean, I lost half of my town where I live in the Almeda fire. That had nothing to do with any, any kind of forest thinning, even though millions were being spent in the backcountry on forest thinning. I lost half of my community in one structure to structure. The embers were blowing sideways in winds. We're seeing pyro tornadoes in California. Uh, no amount of fuel break, no amount of thinning is going to stop those fires. So we've got to really not oversell thinning as a tool. And uh, if we're going to thin, if you have to thin, just leave the big fire-resistant trees alone. And yet we see this over and over again in federal timber sales that they sweeten the pot by bringing in the large trees. Now, I also want to point out that uh, the infrastructure law 
and the inflation reduction law have sent billions of dollars to the federal agencies to do more so-called fuel reduction. A lot of that is promoting logging and it's gonna promote biomass energy facilities, which are only gonna make it worse in the long run for the climate. Yet we're seeing billions going to a program that is going to cause more harm than good uh, by adding to the climate problem and not subtracting from it. Hmm. So it sounds like it's sort of maybe two steps forward, one step back or one step forward, two steps back with the Biden administration so far. Um, I heard you talk on a panel at the Society of Environmental Journalists um, conference, and you mentioned that you would like to see something akin to the roadless rule um, to protect these mature and old growth forests. What did you mean when you said that? Yeah. So, you know, because I've been at it for so long, I, you know, was there during the roadless rule days. And, you know, the, the Clinton administration was incredibly conservation minded. And they put together a roadless rule that stands today that, for the most part, protects about 58.5 million acres of inventory roadless areas around the nation. We need something like that. I mean, we're in a major global biodiversity and climate crisis. I spoke at the uh, the climate summit in Egypt and at the biodiversity summit in Montreal about this. We need to do two things right away, quickly as possible. Got to get off of fossil fuels. That's a no-brainer in terms of the solution. And we've got to increasingly enlist natural climate solutions alongside fossil fuel reductions. And it turns out that these older forests and large trees are our best terrestrial natural climate solution. And so what we need is a huge leap forward in forest climate policy on the part of the Biden administration that would rival something as at least as big as the roadless rule. We do have another executive order that the president signed right when he took office to uh, direct the agencies to consider protecting 30 percent of the nation's lands and waters by 2030. And so far, they've done some of that. You know, they reinstated the Tongass uh, roadless rule uh, that put back 9.3 million acres of roadless protections that Trump took away. So that's a kind of a step in the right direction. But they've got a long ways to go to get to 30 percent. We've only protected 12 percent of our nation's lands and waters. And if they put all of these mature and old growth forests into a strict protection uh, process, then they would take a big step towards that 30% goal. I think that raises the question in terms of, and we've talked a lot on this podcast about how you count to 30, what counts as a durable protection. So when you're talking about old growth forests and let's go ahead and, and policy nerd out here, what counts as a durable protection that you would consider uh, a 30 by 30 worthy level of, of durable protections? Yeah, another great question, because I worked on this issue uh, years ago. We put together, uh, we being my organization and the Conservation Biology Institute, the nation's first protected area database. And it's been up and running now for two decades, and we add to it periodically. The folks, the scientists overseeing it add to it periodically. 
which is where the 12% number comes from. Um, the, the difficulty with that is we use uh, accepted protocols for defining what protection is that are established by the U.S. Geological Survey and also the international community in terms of what counts as protection. So things like wilderness, national parks, that's kind of the highest bar. And then you've got national monuments, wildlife refuges that may be a step below that. Uh, and then you've got multiple use lands that are just you know, the problem that we're facing. And then you've got private lands, uh, industrial private lands that have very little protection. So if you look at it in terms of that gradient, it, it's, you know, it's discrete, right? Strict to no protection. But there's this gray zone of what do you do with things like the roadless rule that don't get inventoried in the protected categories, but they should have some kind of acknowledgement. And it's because, you know, the policy is flipped across administrations, Bush, uh, Obama, Trump, Biden. It kind of has been a tennis match on roadless areas. It's not and it hasn't been stable, but it's still there. Uh, so we, we're arguing that it should count for something. So uh, what it should what we should do with that is look at it as low hanging fruit. How can we add to it since it's already pretty much out of the timber base? What kind of improvements can be made to the roadless policy that would get it bumped up at that level of protection? Now, in terms of mature and old growth forest, if they're going to go in there and start doing some selective logging, that doesn't count. Uh, and what we need are administrative protections that start that process moving towards 30 by 30. You don't get to log in those forests. So that's the first step. And then what else is missing as we go forward to get them bumped up to a level that should count? So right now, um, those areas are kind of in the gray zone and they could count eventually towards 30 by 30, but uh, clearly it has to be better than uh, any form of logging in those forests. So I want to ask a quick follow-up, and I sh maybe should have asked this earlier. Can you explain how the roadless rule protects forests? What what exactly is the mechanism there? Yeah, so the rule itself says that you can't build any roads into roadless areas that have been inventory. These are large blocks of, of areas that are mostly forested, not all, but mostly, uh, and they're at least 5,000 acres in size, but there's kind of this wiggly language in there that says that uh, you protect them, except if there are some fire concerns, then you can go in there and, and take predominantly small trees. So it's weasel words like that that are troubling, right? And there are all kinds of examples of where uh, and still, there are proposals to go into roadless areas to take predominantly small trees. And we know what that means, right? They're, well, there's a big tree over here, but we're taking 100 small trees. So we're taking predominantly small trees, right? So it's not really the strictest level of protection. It doesn't preclude mining. Uh, and there's also hydroelectric development that happens in places like in Alaska. So it's not inviolate. Uh, but it is better than what the status quo was at the time when we were losing those areas at a, an accelerating rate because of all kinds of development that was going in 
uh, going inside of them. So I, I think that tightening up the roadless language would go a long way towards achieving the 30 by 30 target. Interesting. Okay. That's, I was going to ask you, or I was going to try to summarize everything we've just talked about since we went a little out of order there, but basically what you're talking about is sort of a roadless rule part two, um, or 2.0, I should say improved for the 21st century and the 30 by 30 goal. I think so. And I think we've got to deal with the fire hysteria. And, you know, again, I lost half of my town. I know what that's like. And logging and thinning in the backcountry is it's not going to have any effect at all at reducing the odds that towns and homes are going to burn down. It's all about working from the home out. And as mentioned earlier, the problem is climate change and industrially logged landscapes. So if we're going to do anything in terms of restoration, there's so much that we could be doing in the already logged landscapes. And um, these mature and old growth forests are really nature's best climate solution. I want to jump up to the 30,000 foot view. And I think a and a hundred year old assumption that underlies all of these policies today. And, and that's the fact that the Forest Service is part of the Agriculture Department, not the Interior Department. And that comes from this assumption made 100 plus years ago that America's forests are first and most, first and foremost, agricultural products to be harvested and not ecosystems to be managed or protected. I think we've obviously come a long way as a country since then, but how much of that agricultural mindset is still baked into the Forest Service in USA Today, or how much progress has been made from your perspective since the timber wars of the 80s and 90s that really changed things thanks to the courts stepping in and changing how the Forest Service works? Yeah, you know, and it's not just a forest service, it's just the BLM too. We could talk about sure. them too. Multiple use uh, mandates and FLIPMA and all that, yes. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, over time there's been a stacking of legislation that has made the agency, at least in theory, more holistic in terms of their approach. Yet, you know, depending on what direction the political winds are blowing, you get a different mindset. And in these agencies. And if it's blowing in one direction, you're going to have a lot more emphasis on logging. And if it's blowing in another direction, you're going to get more emphasis on conservation. And, you know, I lived through a lot of these different administrations, the best one in my lifetime working on this for four decades now was the Clinton administration. They had the right people in the leadership roles at the at the, le the highest levels, and we got the roadless rule, and we got a lot of good things rolling. Uh, you know, the jury is out on this administration. There are some good people that are doing the analysis, but what happens at the top remains to be seen. And, you know, the agency, when you look at it, in terms of the nation's wood basket, so to speak, they are a drop in the bucket. I mean, it's only about 4% of the nation's timber supply coming off of the national forest. Yet the national forest have our cleanest drinking water, have most of our imperiled wildlife species, have incredible recreation opportunities that are increasingly in demand, that have all of these other important things that you don't get 
on private and many state lands. And so, you know, we need to increasingly move the federal agencies in the direction of the public trust in terms of nature-based solutions, recreation, wildlife, hunting, you know, the, the whole gamut of, of the basket of ecosystem services that we get from these forests is rooted deeply in the federal lands. And so maybe timber needs to be further into the back of the bus on this one. We've talked on this podcast about how the Biden administration is really uh, facing a deadline here at, with the the president's first term coming to an end soon, much sooner than than it feels like, especially with the Congressional Review Act hanging over everything. They, they effectively have one year to get rules finalized to be protected from the CRA. So if you were sitting there at the Council on Environmental Quality or at the Office of Management and Budget saying, okay, we only have one year left. Here are the one or two rules regarding forests that I'm going to get over the finish line in that one year. What's at the top of your list? You know, it's a mature and old growth forest uh, rule that actually protects the forest. There's nothing more important on forest right now than that. That's, that's numero uno. And doing that would establish a legacy gift to the nation that would be remembered for generations to come. So that would be my, my message to the White House. And I've already made that known to them that this is, this is your signature moment and there's nothing more important on forest than a really good rule on mature and old growth forest. All right. I think we will leave it there. Dr. Dominic De La Sala, chief scientist at Wild Heritage, which is a project of the Earth Island Institute. Dr. De La Sala, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been great. Our good news this week comes out of southeastern Oregon, where members of Congress and the BLM are working on two different solutions to better manage public lands. Oregon Senators Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley reintroduced a bill in Congress this month to protect more than one million acres of rugged wilderness in the Owyhee Canyonlands. The legislation would give ranchers more flexibility for grazing and transfer some land to the Burns Paiute tribe. Meanwhile, the Bureau of Land Management is preparing to finalize its management plan for more than 4 million acres across southeastern Oregon. Ranchers, hunters, and conservation groups are all on board with the bill and the BLM plans. Not sure how they did it, but kudos to the BLM as well as Wyden for striking compromises with lots of stakeholders. You know, as we've said and heard on this podcast over and over again, Land management is hard. It's just getting folks around the same table, doing the hard work of hammering out an agreement. And when you do that, that's a success story, like you see here with this bill. Well, that is it for today, folks. I uh, hope everyone has a great and safe Independence Day, hopefully on our public lands. If you want to get in touch, email podcast at westernpriorities.org. We love your compliments, complaints, suggestions for future guests, and go follow up on the socials if you haven't already. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok, where you can find a weekly news roundup from our TikToker extraordinaire, Sterling. That's right. 
Thanks again to Dr. Della Sala for joining us today. And thank you for listening to The Landscape.